Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, bit to get 30, bit to get 20, 20, 20, bit to get 20, 20, bit to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Happy New Year, everyone. As we break the seal on a brand new 2024, a lot of us are beginning to think about our resolutions for the year ahead. More to the point, some of us may or may not still be feeling the effects of the revelry of Christmas, or even just the excess of last night. And we might be vowing to turn over a new leaf and start living life more healthily in the new year. Maybe you'd like to take up more exercise, cut back on your alcohol intake, or just be a bit more thoughtful about the way that you eat. These sorts of ambitions are perfectly normal in our society, but you might be surprised to learn that the idea of keeping fit is by no means a new one. Medieval people were every bit as interested in being, getting, and staying healthy as we are. They just had some really different ways of looking at the whole thing. In a medical system which is guided not by germ theory, but the idea that one needed to keep the four humors, that's black bile, yellow bile, blood, and phlegm, in balance. Diet was less about calories and more about foods that complemented your theoretical humoral makeup. Medieval people might not have understood the concept of aerobic or anaerobic activity, but they absolutely knew that exercise, from swimming to lifting weights, was of huge benefit. Sure, they didn't know what germs were, but they knew that if you wanted everyone in the city to stay healthy, you had to clear out the rubbish and make sure everyone had clean water. So the same means and goals were there, but medieval people were using a very different framework to explain it. I'm Dr. Eleanor Yanaka, and today on Gone Medieval from History Hit, I've asked the legendary Professor Carol Rockcliffe, who you may remember from our episode on leprosy, and whose research currently looks at ideas of health and fitness in the late medieval period, to join me once again to help explain exactly how medieval people thought about staying fit, and how medical practitioners, and sometimes society as a whole, facilitated that process. Thank you so much for being here. Pleasure. We wanted to talk about your more recent work, which is on the idea of keeping fit in the Middle Ages, which I think a lot of people would be really surprised to hear that medieval people were thinking of this at all. <laughs> Maybe they would. I think people have this idea of everyone walking around knee-deep in squalor, <laughs> which is certainly not the case. And when you think about it, preventative medicine is really the best bet. We realize that death is omnipresent in the Middle Ages, but there's even small things. Suppose you're in a pub brawl if you're a man and you get a cut. That can easily become septicemia. 
there's no antisepsis, there's no blood transfusion, there's no antibiotics, there's none of the technology that we take for granted today in the West. And you can easily be looking at death with a very minor infection. And if you add on to that malaria, typhoid, diphtheria, the Black Death, preventive medicine begins to assume a really important position. Just to put this into perspective, we're all thinking about deaths in COVID. But during the Black Death, between a half and a third of the population of Britain died. This is before the subsequent outbreak. And in Norwich, where I live, the population fell from about 25,000 in 1330 to just below 8,000 in 1370. It's just absolutely overwhelming. And especially when we think about Norwich, that's the second largest city in England after London at the time. People say the word decimate, and I'm always saying it's much more than that. Because decimate only implies you lost 10%. Now, that may encourage a view, oh, it's all doom and gloom. But on the other side, it makes people very anxious to stay fit. Because once you did fall ill, health is very fragile. So we see from way before the Black Death, the burgeoning of this literature, which is called Regimen Sanitatis, the Mm -hmm. Regimen of Health, which is about how to preserve your health, how to keep fit. And with the passage of time, it elaborates to cover just about everybody. You can have regimen for an individual. Mm -hmm. If you're really rich, you can commission one. Or you can have them for particular groups of people, such as travellers, the elderly, the young, pregnant women. You can have them for cities, keeping cities healthy and fit. And they multiply in a whole range of different sort of spheres. You even have them for soldiers, for life in camp. How do you keep fit if you're marching from one place to another, probably spreading disease. So there's a real focus on the idea of prevention being better than cure. And when we say keeping fit, the way they're thinking about fitness and health is very different to how we are, though, right? Because we're working here on the humoral system now. We are. And the idea is that basically you are what you eat. The great Greek physician Galen describes diet as the first instrument of medicine. And what happens in the body, and remember, there's no idea of circulation at this date, is what you eat, it's cooked in the stomach, and then in the liver, it's turned into what is called humoral matter. And this can be hot and dry, or hot and wet, cold and dry, or cold and wet. And keeping a balance between these humors is what health is all about. This matter is transmitted in the veins to the body, and it feeds it. Some of this matter is filtered through the heart and mixed with air from the outside world. And that is called vital spirit or pneuma. And that gives life and that's warm. And then some of this matter finally is filtered through a network at the base of the brain. It doesn't exist, but Galen thought it did. And that becomes <laughs> animal spirit and that animates you and it drives your thought processes. All of this very complex, very sophisticated and very holistic system is in many respects driven from what you put in your mouth and what you breathe. And keeping fit is predicated on managing all this system. There's a huge emphasis then on literally what's coming into your body, body. whether we're inhaling it or, in my case, inhaling because I eat too fast. And we want to keep ourselves in balance. 
you will turn to these regimen sanitas in order to tell you how to do that. Are these individualized diets that we're really looking at? Or? It depends what the regimen is for. The idea in here, and it's very simple and it's very good, and it will resonate with listeners because mm. it's based on what are called non-naturals. And these are agencies outside the body, and there are six of them. And the first of them is diet. So you eat a diet which keeps your humours balanced. The second of them is the environmental air and water. So you need clean air and fresh water. And then you have agencies such as the hygiene of sleep, exercise. You need to exercise, but you need to be careful not to overdo it. Then you've got what is known as repletion and expulsion. So you get rid of things which are dangerous for your body. So you need to take laxatives, perhaps, or enemas, or diuretics. You need to bathe to sweat out substances which may be corrupt in your body. And you may possibly need to have phlebotomy, and that is bloodletting if you're a man, because these ideas suggest that you may be carrying corrupt matter in your body. And this is really important mm. during plague time. And the sixth thing, which will again resonate today, is the idea of the accident of the soul. And this is avoiding stress, anger, or perhaps anxiety, real stress over what am I going to do now? Am I yeah. afraid, fear, and also anxiety about sin. And so confession will help with that. The other things you can do is gardening, for example. Gardening is relaxing. Going out walking in the fresh air, music, reading. All these kinds of ideas will help you to keep that humoral balance and will also help you to defend yourself in times of plague. So just circling back to the phlebotomy, I think this is um, a particularly masculine treatment. Yeah, men aren't menstruating. Also, if you're not menstruating and you're a woman, you're probably pregnant, mm -hmm. unless you survive into old age, which many people do after the Black Death, because yeah. those who survive are having better diets and living in better conditions. Generally, it's a masculine thing. If you're a young man, you would be recommended to have it say, every six or seven weeks. But you have to be very careful because you don't want to be phlebotomized when the moon's in the wrong sign. Something else altogether. But phlebotomy is just one of a raft of different strategies. Your regimen may be an off-the-peg one because these begin to circulate in generic copies as society becomes more literate. But if you're really grand, you will have your own. And we do have surviving some of these guides which are written for a specific individual. Such, for example, as one that was written for Humphrey, Duke of Gloucester, the younger brother of Henry V. And he was quite promiscuous. And his doctor, who is called Gilbert Keimer, he tells him, <laughs> you're sleeping around far too much. This is bad for your humoral balance. Mm -hmm. It's making you phlegmatic. Of course, as a feminine human, yeah. you're weakening your blood. So stop it. I don't know if he took any notice of it. But at the other extreme, we do know that urban corporations take notice because they introduce all these schemes for public health. They do have some effect. After their Black Death, they invest an enormous amount in carts for refuse cleaning. They improve rules about how you manage cesspits and the like. And on top of that, they're investing much more heavily in the water supply. And bearing in mind that they're quite draconian rules about fly-tipping, dumping refuse. This all adds up to a major health initiative. Of course, we can't envisage it in our terms because they didn't simply have the resources or the yeah. money. But they are doing a lot. And when we add on to this all the rules about butchery, butchers are obliged to follow very strict regulations about where they dump carcasses and the like. And 
sell-by dates for food produce, making sure contaminated food isn't being sold. It does add up to quite an achievement, I think, and it's not unique to London. Other towns and cities throughout England are trying, even if they don't always succeed, to improve levels of public health. And this is seen as a religious work as well, because in the Bible, Christ explains that you've got to perform certain activities in order to go to heaven. You give the poor water, you give them food, you give them clothing, you visit the sick and so on. And you can easily translate paying for pipe water into performing a comfortable deed. Mm. And one of the great benefactors of the city, Richard Whittington, certainly has his eye on the next life when he's providing money for prison reforms so prisoners are living in cleaner conditions. He's instituting measures for cleaning streets and having cleaner water. You've always got one eye on the next world. One of the things that I think is really intriguing about medieval people is how they are aware of these things. And I don't know how much good 10 feet outside the walls is going to do you, (laughs) but it's something fair play to you. But they are very strict about how the waste is removed. It has to be taken out into barges and deposited in the Thames at ebb tide. But there is a lot of nimbyism. And the Mm. people who live in Hoburn create literally a stink about this. And they petition (laughs) Parliament. And they make such a fuss because, of course, the great and the good are living in Hoburn. And they have their residences on the river. they get very wrought up about these butchers. And so you do get these responses about uh, this air is not healthy. All this litigation shows you how common these ideas were. You're taking someone to court for breaking health regulations, and you can do it successfully because this is all enacted by Parliament. It's all in the statute book. And if it's not in the statute book, it's in local regulations. And you can be fined quite substantial sums, particularly when plague is around. These towns and cities become much more twitchy. So do individuals. These ideas even translate into travel guides. I was reading a very interesting guide, which was written by a man called William Way. And he'd been on a pilgrimage to Jerusalem. And he gives you all these practical guides about what you should and shouldn't do when you're traveling. Travel with a large barrel, just in case you get the trots and you're on shipboard. Advice about where not to go. Don't stop at Famagusta, he says, because there's marshland and the air is very corrupt. And he's also giving you the idea of the food. You shouldn't eat native food unless it's chickens or hens that you can actually see the eggs being laid and it's safe on board. Don't use local fruit because it may make you sick. And of course, if it's washed in corrupt water, it may well do It might do, yeah. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of these guides that are produced for travellers are really quite specific and in many respects quite pragmatic about dealing with things like sunburn, Mm -hmm. upset stomachs and the like. Mm -hmm. But again, their basis is humoral theory Mm -hmm. in ways that we might find quite perplexing. You've always got to keep an eye on your humoral balance wherever you are. Because I think that what I'm most familiar with in terms of health recommendations, it's dietary advice. I'm forever looking at dietary regimen that tells you to eat trout cooked in almond milk and being like, oh, I don't, I suppose so. Yeah, because these things would be good for if you're a little too hot, trout is slightly cold and it brings down this... And almonds are sanguine, and so blanc manger, mm. which is chicken mixed with almonds and gives us blancmange, is the ideal diet for the sick or people with upset humours because it's moderately sanguine. Right. Sanguine is the best humour. So you're always trying to have a moderately sanguine humour. It's mm-hmm. very difficult for some people who may be choleric. And your humour balance changes through life, which is why advice changes. Regimina for the elderly are very interesting because they're Mm. dealing with people who are implicitly going to be colder than drier, actually. 
you go through a hot, dry phase, and then you become colder and drier. Because the process of aging is one of just simply becoming colder and colder, colder and drier,、mm -hmm. and then gradually, in the end, you so little heat in your body, it can't cope with the moisture, and you end up drowning in your own humours. It's very sophisticated and very complicated. But these regimen for the elderly, for example, would prescribe a warm, moist diet. They also prescribe keeping cheerful. That's good for your levels of warmth. Sanguine people are by nature cheerful, yeah. And so you're advised to see your friends regularly, enjoy gardening, have food that is going to make you feel happy, but not too much of it. A little meat cooked in red wine, but not too much of it. And also keep your brain active. So you should do mathematical puzzles. Or reading, and so a lot of this, while relating to humoral balance,、mm. is actually very resonant today. And of course, the idea of getting drier as you age is familiar to those of us who see our wrinkles in the mirror.、Yeah. <laughs> Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what big wireless does. They charge you a lot; we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from thirty dollars a month to just fifteen dollars a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com/slash-switch. Forty-five dollars up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promoting for new customers for limited time. Unlimited, more than forty gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. JD Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in store. And now save fifty percent on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For JD Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com/awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. How did Hitler's sexuality shape his worldview? Why did the Black Death lead to the rise of the witch trials? And what are some of the sauciest scandals involving kings and queens at Hampton Court? I don't know about you, but this is the history I want to hear about. If you do too, then join me, Kate Lister, every Tuesday and Friday to find out the answers to all of these questions. And more. Listen to Betwixt the Sheets: The History of Sex Scandal in Society wherever you get your podcasts. Brought to you by History Hit. What about then exercise? Does that also apply to regular people? If you're a peasant, you're out there plowing in the field. Is anyone saying to peasants, "Oh, by the way, you really need to be doing some star jump"? It doesn't, because exercise to be really effective has to be taken at specific times of day to assist your digestion. And these guides say specifically, we're not talking about people walking long distance to trade or somebody digging in the field. We're talking about people who may be more sedentary, but they will need to break off at particular points. And you do not exercise on a full or an empty stomach. But the regimens for exercise are amazing. There was one that was produced for the canons who were living in Smithfield, and the person who wrote it, who was called John Murphy, he actually copied it from somebody else. He's advising them to. 
exercise in their own cells because he says it's not really becoming for the church to see people jogging around London. But the exercise he suggests, these are for youngish men, is do weight training and to have particular weights which they lift up and put down or to have ropes that they can swing on so they're getting upper body strength. The idea is you exercise all the parts of the body to an equal degree. Although if you're old and your knees are creaky, it might be advisable to row. So once you get arthritic knees, then you have to modify your regimen. So the exercise that you're taking is a bit fraught because there's also a lot of status involved here. Say, for example, Thomas Eliot, who's writing in the 16th century, absolute thing about football. He says, do not do football. It's, it's just <laughs> appalling. Only scruffs and the lower orders do football. Mm-hmm. Football, he calls it. It's much better to do something like riding or archery because mm. that's more in keeping with people of a higher status. So these very aggressive group sports are not for somebody who's a king or a nobleman. You hunt. And the people who write hunting literature make a great thing about how healthy it is. People who hunt eat sparely, they exercise a lot, and they're out in the open air, and they're fit. Galen said hunting with dogs was one of the best forms of exercise that anyone could take. It made you happy. And there are guides for women, too. There are guides for monks, because it's very important that you stay fit so you can do God's work. In the later Middle Ages, hair shirts often go out the window, as do ascetic diets, because the idea is that you need a balanced diet, you need to live in clean surroundings to do the work of God. Yeah, I suppose a lot of time that work is things like working in hospitals. You better be healthy if everyone around you is unwell and needs help. And these ideas are very prominent among the friars because friars are doing pastoral work and they're doing a lot of walking they have to be fit ideas of physical health really take off with the friars as well there are a lot of different reasons explaining why they become so popular but ordinary people in the street would know these ideas because regimina are often rhymed so you can repeat them in verse even if you can't read and the proclamations that are made in towns and cities explaining why you have to bring your refuse out on Tuesday will explain exactly the importance of having fresh air. So we shouldn't just assume that these ideas are circulating among a narrow elite. A sort of rough and ready version of them is percolating down among ordinary citizens who know very well that they shouldn't be eating contaminated meat and know that they should be drinking fresh water, just as we don't necessarily know the mechanics of the spread of covid and, and a lot of our wisdom about being fit, it is received, isn't it? One of the reasons these ideas take off so much is that they tie in absolutely with the teachings of the church. Mm-hmm. They come from Arab physicians, writers on medicine originally, many of them, but they're just fit, don't they, like a glove. Mm. Ideas about the seven deadly sins. And they fit ideas about keeping the body politic clear vagrants and ne'er-do-wells who are clogging up the humoral system of the body politic. They give the rulers of towns and cities a good reason to get rid of vagrants. They're very malleable, these Mm -hmm. ideas, and they can be used for a whole raft of different reasons, many of which we might consider to be quite cruel. Regarding vagrants as a sort of form of corruption in the body politic you need to get rid of, you can use them for those ideas as well. Yeah, absolutely. So when we're talking about gender, it sounds like I would expect to see more of them be for men. There's a monastic lifestyle one. For travelers, it's not that women don't travel. Do we see, for example, guides for the health of nuns? 
nuns are certainly clearly aware of these things. There's a famous abbess, Euphemia, who was at Werewell Abbey, and she put all these ideas into action in her monastery. She cleared out dirt, she had gardens planted, Mm -hmm. she made sure that the nuns took exercise, she had orchards put where they could go and stroll every day. And she was noted for it in the Chronicles. And then there are guides that are written for specific women, such as Eleanor of Provence, the wife of Henry III. A man called Aldobrandino of Siena wrote a guide for her and female members of her family. So women are not left out. But in these guides, it's always the male voice. But of course, it can be men and women. And the abbesses and people who are running female houses are very much just as aware of these ideas as monks are. They're not precluded from this literature at all. Mm -hmm. And many women, of course, in the later Middle Ages are completely literate. They're interested in these books. Some women, indeed, are practicing medicine. We shouldn't regard them as being shut out because Mm -hmm. a male voice is being employed here. It's also quite striking um, with this emphasis on what we would call mental health. I think that there is this tendency for us now to say to ourselves, oh, a preoccupation with mental health or an understanding that this is a part of one's overall health, that's something that we've just discovered now. This is completely untrue. The system I've described where the animal spirits are influencing how you think, mind and body are welded together in this holistic unit and nobody in the middle ages would have divorced physical from mental health they would have seen it as a packet and when you take into account too that there is this religious element as well despair is a sin you know despairing of your salvation is a sinful thing you need to take measures to buck yourself up for religious reasons as well you need to take care that you're not sinking into a pit of depression or anxiety And monastic writers are very aware of this, of the dangers of acidity, of being alienated from your community. And this is why they are so adamant about having a proper diet, having periods of rest and relaxation. In many places, monks are sent away for a period to country estates where they can enjoy fresh air and more exercise. They have periods of relaxation from the round of prayer that they are caught in case they just become completely disenchanted with this. And you can write a whole article about actual health practices in monasteries to prevent people sinking into this slough of despond, if you like. If you're on this religious treadmill and you're not thinking very carefully Mm. uh, what you are doing. Yeah, I suppose that's true. If you're encouraged to ruminate at length, about your soul. It can be quite easy to get down. It can be introspective, and you can lose the plot. There's an entertaining aspect to this, because the young monks at St Albans were sent away to a country estate on a rota, and they'd have a period of holidays where they would have to attend a few services and do some reading, but the rest of the time they could go out. And the abbot got very concerned that some of them were running into the neighbouring fields and jumping over hedges. And he wrote this very strong memorandum, and they're playing football. (laughs) But we do know that some monks have David Beckham-style injuries that they must have sustained when they're playing ball games. Because these young men, they're taking their novitiate when they're teenagers. They can be stuck in a religious environment for a very long time. And some of them live to a really ripe old age. And so on the one hand, you can have a very high death rate among choir monks. But on the other, some of them can live to a really ripe old age. There's a lot of concern in the late Middle Ages about the mental world these people are occupying. Are they getting enough break to think about what they're doing and then come back refreshed? But... 
also within the kind of religious context of the Middle Ages, if in a situation where you're encouraged, for example, to confess fairly regularly, it can almost act as a form of talking therapy in a way. It is, and this is why it's one of the things you do to deal with your accidents of your soul. Mm. Many physicians in their practica, these are their Latin case notes, observe that the patient does recover after confession. In 1215, confession was mandatory before medical treatment. The papacy introduced this ruling. Not everybody observed it. You're supposed to confess. And if you do believe that sin is causing disease or is you're carrying this awful burden of things mm. you've done wrong, and you don't have to be religious to do it, you can feel very guilty about your behavior, and you confess, then you will feel better. This will give you a new lease of life. And mm. You may be able to go about your daily life in a much more energetic fashion. These ideas of your mental health are hugely important in the Middle Ages, particularly when you think that you're living in this period of epidemics. You do need to take constant steps to deal with this, mm. and they have to be psychological as well as physical. The regimen of health, if properly followed, did include enough advice for you to lead a good life. For example, avoiding binge drinking, moderate sexual activity, moderate diet. These are Aristotelian, but they also fit in very well with the sort of life that your average layman or laywoman in the Middle Ages would be trying to live. They couldn't aspire to be saintly, but mm -hmm. they could aspire to be good. And being good is a question of balance. And it's been said that the regimen becomes in the later Middle Ages not just a lifestyle guide, but a sort of secular ethics. And it is something which people turn to, not just for physical, but for mental health. But as we've said, the two are so closely integrated mm -hmm. that you cannot separate them. It's just how we are now. All one has to do is look at any sort of like health influencer online, right? And you'll hear exactly the same thing. Although, of course, at a more benign level, it's the sort of thing that you would also hear from your own doctor when you go in. Even if we feel as though we are experiencing mental health problems, often our first port of call is our medical doctor. Doesn't though today ask us if we've confessed? <laughs> Luckily. <laughs> I'm not really looking for that particular intrusion. <laughs> It is true. Obviously, there are these huge differentiation points between us and medieval people. Clearly, I don't want to talk to my doctor about the state of my soul or my salvation. But in a different world where that was the organizing principle, the way that we all thought about ourselves and what we owe to each other, then that would be much more welcome. Yes, it would. And there is a strong element of community in these guides, particularly the ones that are produced in plague time. They do stress that not only do you have to do certain things to avoid plague, but you also have to be a good neighbor. You don't throw your dirt out. And the guides that are written, the tracks for plague, do emphasize this element of Christian community. You're supposed to behave in a way that is going to benefit your neighbor as well as yourself. People tend to see themselves much less as isolated units. You are part of a community and you're all working together because in many senses plague is seen as a punishment for collective sin. But it's also something that you're aware that you do together, you resist together. So these guides are not only helping individuals but they're helping entire communities by emphasizing that element of cohesion as well. And this is something which these urban regimina really emphasize, mm -hmm. because the town or the city is seen as a body, 
it is a body that is made up of component members and these members all have to work together there's no point having a healthy brain if your feet aren't working and therefore the aristocracy don't just look after themselves they have to make sure the peasantry and the laboring classes are all right because they're the feet so you are in a body of limbs and organs all of which have to be healthy and they all have to work together in a corporeal unit the overriding metaphor is of the body the urban body Mm. of these people together individuals who are introducing components of sin or dirt or filth are bad they are in some senses to be expelled be corrected because they're these very tight-knit little communities which have their own little court and everybody is answerable to these if you're throwing your rubbish out or you're poisoning a ditch or you've got somebody in your house who's got an infectious disease or something like that you are answerable to the community and people will report you there's an awful lot of this goes on and the london leak records or they call wardmoot records very interesting mrs bloggs has got a gutter that's overflowing joe smith is keeping prostitutes in his house there's an eye on you this is not all entirely voluntary and these records are very interesting because they show us how seriously people took these ideas because these complaints are coming from the bottom up they're coming from street level your neighbor is reporting you because you're doing something that's unhygienic that just goes to show that there is this sophisticated idea among the average citizen it it isn't about proclamations this is actual grassroots it is it's it's not policing is it but double checking double checking we do call it urban policing Mm -hmm. pigs are a huge thing you're not supposed to have pigs in many towns and cities but Mm. people keep them and sometimes they let them out now on the one hand they're clearing the gutters but on the other they're seen as a source of filth and pollution and you're supposed to get rid of them people are reported if they have dangerous pigs Mm. noxious pigs and this extends to all other kinds of urban animals and so you've always got somebody watching you oh god i could talk to you about this all day but i think we're going to have to leave it there carol i can't thank you enough this has been an absolute delight thank you my many many thanks to carol for joining me once again and thanks to everyone for listening and best wishes for your own new year's resolutions whatever they may be i'm dr eleanor yonaga and this has been gone medieval from history hit And if you've liked what you've heard, please don't forget to rate, review, follow the podcast, and tell your friends about it. My co-host Matt Lewis will be back on Friday to bring even more medieval goodness into your life. And I'll be back next Tuesday, as always, hopefully with perfectly balanced humors. Until next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of Gone Medieval. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us out and you'll be doing me a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com forward slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use the code MEDIEVAL at checkout.